you're listening to Louisiana Considered here on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Patrick Madden. It's the holiday season, and with the new year fast approaching, we thought it would be a good time to reflect on some of our favorite stories from the year and give listeners a little behind-the-scenes insight into how they came together. For more, we are joined by Louisiana Considered's managing producer, Alana Schreiber. Alana, thank you so much for being here. Patrick, thanks for having me. Alana, it's been a year chock full of great stories here on Louisiana Considered. Are there any that are sticking out to you right now? Well, it's a hard to choose from, but one that I really enjoyed was your interview with Terry Baquet and David Francis about the launch of their new newsroom, Verite. That's right. Uh, I spoke to them about this new newsroom, which is dedicated to elevating the voices from communities that have historically gone underreported, if not ignored entirely. And Verite has reported on topics like education, health care, criminal justice, all with a bent towards covering areas that, that haven't always gotten the media coverage that they deserve. And they've also focused on hiring a team of diverse journalists from various backgrounds. And not to mention, Terry Bacay and David Francis are pretty impressive journalists in their own right. Oh, that's definitely true, Alana. David Francis, who is the executive editor, was formerly executive vice president and publisher of the Times-Picayune-NOLA.com, and he worked for the Times-Picayune for more than two decades. That's a long time, but not as long as Terry Bacay, who I know worked for the Times-Picayune for 28 years, that's almost three decades, serving as the Sunday editor and winning two Pulitzer Prizes for his coverage of Hurricane Katrina. And since that conversation we had back in August, uh, their newsroom has grown. They've published stories on racism in the classroom, new mental health resources for New Orleans students, and editorials on Louisiana's political future. Well, on that note, I think it's time we give this story a second lesson. David Francis, let's start with you. Can you give us an overall preview of this new newsroom, Verite, its overall mission and its role, as you envision it, in the New Orleans media ecosystem? Uh, Well, thank you. Yes. Uh, The Verite will play an important role in in giving voice to portions of our community that often are not allowed that opportunity to express what their needs and concerns are. Um, It'll also work to find collaborative ways to solve some of the issues that are plaguing our city and holding us back from uh, where we should be compared to cities like Atlanta or Houston in the process. Um, Our our second goal is to start educating and mentoring minority journalists to fill a pipeline for other organizations, both local, national, and worldwide, who are struggling to find minority journalists. We think that is an important role that needs to be played in order for communities um, to have a voice and for those who are um, not, not only sympathetic, but have a better understanding of what sort of plagues these communities. Um, at the same time, uh, we'll be looking at opportunities to work with these senior college level students in the fellowship program and also work with individuals who are postgraduate, but haven't had the opportunity to pursue a journalist, journalism career. Uh, if, if you uh, recall, um, you know, at least two newspapers a week are closing down and there's been a significant loss in revenue and resources for uh, media organizations. And from that, the loss of opportunities for those who need some initial training to help them move to a much broader and larger organizations uh, to offer their services. 
So we think it's important not only to catch uh, students at the senior level and give them the, the education, the training, and the mentoring necessary uh, to get them to the next level, but also help those who didn't have the, I, I think you call it the intermediate uh, resources they needed to, to blossom. Terry, you've had a long storied career in journalism here in New Orleans at the Times-Picayune, at NOLA.com. Talk about what being a nonprofit journalism outlet means. Are there stories that perhaps newspapers and other for-profit media outlets uh, can't cover, or at least can't cover as extensively as a nonprofit journalism organization? Well, remember, you know, as a nonprofit, and I've uh, lived in both worlds. I'm beginning a new life in the nonprofit world, but a nonprofit is, you know, not beholden to. Uh, advertisers and subscribers. And most of the people who can afford to subscribe to newspapers and pay for subscriptions, you know, are folks who have steady jobs. We're going to be reporting for, for and about people who are struggling daily just to make ends meet. And I think it, it gives us the opportunity to talk to a segment of New Orleans society that has nobody talking for them. We, we in a sense, can give, you know, voice to the voiceless in New Orleans. And you're listening to Louisiana Considered here on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Patrick Madden, and we're speaking with David Francis, Executive Director of Verite, and Terry Baquet, Editor-in-Chief of Verite. It's a new nonprofit journalism outlet that is happening here in New Orleans, and we're excited uh, to speak with David and Terry. And, and Terry, let's continue on that point you were making. How important is it to train the next generation of journalists, particularly journalists journalists of color, journalists who are from this region, who are from New Orleans, and why is that so important right now, especially here in New Orleans? Um, my brother worked for years in the newsroom in New York. I have friends in, in newsrooms in Atlanta and Denver and Birmingham, and everybody is struggling to get minority journalists into their newsroom because minority journalists will bring a new voice to uh, these publications. And, you know, if, if we can take up the, the mantle of training these folks, training young uh, potential journalists, educating them on being good, responsible reporters and creating a pipeline Whereas they get to work in newsrooms all over the, the city, the country, the world, that's an opportunity for every news organization to offer a better and more honest news report. David, for some of us who have been in journalism for a bit, I mean, I remember uh, earlier in my career, it seemed like competition was everything between, you know, different media outlets, newspapers, TV, radio, uh, you know, every, it was all about getting the scoop, speeding your competition. Now, uh, a lot has changed. It really seems like collaboration is the key for media, especially local media, to survive and thrive. Can you talk about the role of collaboration? collaboration for this new newsroom? 
yes, I think that's extremely important to understand also, because if you look at the, the numbers nowadays, they'd say four out of 10 newsrooms now are nonprofit newsrooms. Uh, the idea of sustainability and reliability um, is now forced onto smaller operations because of the loss of revenue from advertising, classified type revenues also. So for us, we know that we will be looking at a different scope of stories and materials than a major newspaper would look at or online operation. For instance, while we will cover um, some breaking news, we won't cover restaurant reviews for an example. So we'll be looking at covering uh, distinct areas out here, doing some investigative journalism, uh, along with general reporting, but also bringing together community uh, activists and, and, and I would say uh, stakeholders to help figure out how do we move forward in, in, in this process, which means that we'll be looking to partner with other local organizations like the Illuminator or um, ProPublica, those types of institutions out here who have sort of the same mission of trying to help in terms of the social justice and understanding um, the communities that are being underserved out here and looking to uplift the communities as a whole. So it's extremely important now that we all kind of buy, combine our resources um, because they are limited and they are shrinking um, for online operations and the newsprint side in trying to cover these areas because we become more complicated as a country out here. We become more siloed as a country and the only way that we can deal with issues that we believe would benefit the uh, communities as a whole is to work together in collaborative ways. We also think that a lot of the new nonprofit organizations are, you know, struggling because of size and finances and uh, those types of things to be able to um, do a lot of the, this sort of work on their own. And if if we as nonprofits and even for-profits uh, can work together, there's a hell of a lot more reporting uh, that we can do together rather than, you know, singular. And last question for both of you. It seems like New Orleans is a place that uh, over the years has had great local journalism and the audience and the community appreciates local journalism. Uh, just tell us about New Orleans as this special place that, that supports ambitious journalism and supports uh, journalists, you know, really covering politicians, holding them accountable as well as the powerful institutions here. I, I think people in the Orleans are well connected to the communities. They're here for generations. And we do have very good reporters. The problem is uh, those numbers are dwindling. If you look back 10, 15 years, you might have had a newsroom with 100 reporters. Now that number is down to maybe 30 or 40 reporters. Um, and also with the, with the competition from uh, social media outlets, uh, it becomes more costly even to get that information out. So for us and other organizations out here, there's no question there is still a commitment to good journalism, but you also have to remember journalism is based on the, um, the judgment of those who run these organizations. And in, in most cases, there are not people of color um, who are running these organizations, making these decisions. And by that implied bias, uh, you have areas that go uncovered, unrecognized, and even the, um, the angle taken to, under, to understand or present those stories may not be truly reflective of the issues that underline uh, those concerns out here. 
David Francis is executive director of Verite. Terry Bakay is the editor-in-chief of Verite. Thank you so much for joining us on Louisiana Considered. Thank you very much. We appreciate the opportunity. Appreciate it. Thanks. And you're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Patrick Madden. Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans 17 years ago. More than 1,800 people lost their lives, and many survivors still grapple with the trauma of evacuation, relocation, and loss. Back in August, we saw the release of a new film that explored how the storm impacted the youth who survived it. Filmmaker and New Orleans native Edward Buckles Jr. joined us to talk about his HBO Max documentary, Katrina Babies. Today, we'll give that conversation a second listen. Edward, first of all, congratulations on this documentary. Your film is centered around the experience of New Orleans children, uh, the, the black people who were children at the time of Katrina. Why was this so important when it came to telling the story of Katrina? It was so important because it was a story that I knew. Uh, it was a story that I knew, um, you know, really, really well. Uh, I am one of the one of the people of that, you know, of this community. Um, you know, I am someone who can relate directly to the experiences um, that we speak about in the film. So <clears throat> it was it was something that was just, you know, in my backyard. It was at my front door. Um, and, um, you know, the, after evacuating Hurricane Katrina and having family that faced Hurricane Katrina and then, you know, being able to return home and growing up in a post-Katrina New Orleans, and seeing how, you know, trauma began to surface within my youth. Um, once I found filmmaking and once I got into storytelling, it was just one of the topics that I wanted to explore. And it was one of, one of the uh, topics that I wanted to bring to a platform so that we could, um, you know, bring, bring some clarity, closure, and also bring some healing um, through it. Edward, when did the idea to make this documentary come to you? Uh, this idea came to me when I was, uh, I think I was 20 and I was in college at Diller University. And I got the idea because I was, I was um, on the phone with my cousin, uh, Tina, who's in the film. And she's some, someone who, who I was really, really close with prior to Hurricane Katrina happening. And because she was never able to return and she was displaced, is displaced um, to this day, um, you know, she and I were um, on the phone and it was a holiday and she was, you know, clearly upset and like emotional about the fact that she was not able to be home with her family celebrating that holiday. And she heard that I was into theater and film and she, uh, told me one day she would allow me to make a movie about our life. And, you know, at first I thought that she was joking. And that's when she went went on to tell me about some of those moments in her life that she thought was movie worthy. And obviously Hurricane Katrina was one of them. And it was when she told me about her children, my cousins, um, who were my best friends um, prior to Hurricane Katrina happening, all of us, are, you know, in close, um, close age range. And as soon as she told me about what my cousin saw and like what my cousins uh, experienced, something clicked and it just made me question um, 
if the current state of New Orleans youth, when it came to violence, when it came to anger, when it came to education, when it came to mental health, it made me question if any of that had anything to do with Hurricane Katrina. And I wanted to draw parallels between them. Edward, can you talk about that theme of how the uprooting from community, the the childhood trauma, and why it's important to have spaces for people to process, to tell these stories, and to make people aware? When you're dealing with traumatic events, it's important that we all check on ourselves. It's important that we all give space and give room, you know, to heal from it whenever that trauma surfaces, because trauma doesn't always surface during traumatic events. Like, you know, sometimes that trauma finds a way to surface years later. But when it comes to children specifically um, who haven't lived as much life and many other experiences like these, you know, for example, like Hurricane Katrina was the first big traumatic um, experience that like a lot of us experience. So we don't know how to deal with that. We don't know how to process that. Uh, we haven't lived enough life or like developed enough to even understand what's really happening to us, right? Um, specifically in Black and disenfranchised communities where you know, we aren't really taught to talk about how we feel, think about how we feel, to feel how we feel. Many of us were not aware of what was happening. So I think that it's very important just moving forward that we pay attention to that and we pay attention to the children who are experiencing these uh, these traumatic events and not just assume because they are young, they're going to grow up and get over it or they're young, they don't understand what's going on. They're young, you know, they're not feeling this like the adults because the truth is, it's going to surface at some point. And, you know, we can prepare the children to understand how to deal with their trauma once it surfaces. Um, we can give them the tools and the resources that they need to uh, handle their trauma once it surfaces, or we can leave it to them and we can get some of the results that we've gotten in the city of New Orleans. And, you know, I think that, you know, what we're seeing when we see like this uproar and violence, that those are just results. And like, those are just reflections of what happens when you uh, don't tend to a, a child's trauma. Edward, obviously uh, this film will be reaching a national audience, but for the local audiences here in New Orleans, in Baton Rouge and South Louisiana, what are some of the takeaways you hope people have? You know, I just want people to know that this is this is not just a New Orleans story. Uh, this is an American story. And, you know, specifically to our neighbors, right? You know, specifically to Baton Rouge and, you know, specifically to Lafayette and all of the river parishes. And, you know, I mean, we can look at Hurricane Ida last year. You know, Hurricane Ida wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as rough on us as it was to, places like Laplace, you know, and, 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 and like some of those other, um, you know, parishes. I mean, you know, I think that the biggest takeaway is that, you know, this is not just a New Orleans story. This can happen in your backyard and just so happen, you know, the closest people to us, this can happen to you. And like, you know, it can, you can get the same treatment or you can get the same slow response. You can get the same lack of um, information and lack of support, um, lack of tools, right? Um, so that's, that's, that's what's really, really important is that, is that, you know, we understand that we must take serious what happened in, two, in 2005 to New, um, we must take serious what happened in 2005 to New Orleans because of the fact that that's just a reflection of what can happen to you. That's just a reflection of like, you know, what can happen, um, today. I mean, as we sit here and, 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 you know, we, we, 
we have a conversation, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, who's, who, who's talking to the children, right? You know, who's, who's preparing their children for the trauma that's going to surface years from now, or, or, or even days from now, months, like, like, whenever that trauma decides to surface, whenever it makes sense, who are preparing the children for what they're experiencing right now in this pandemic, you know, like, I think that this story of new, um, the story of Katrina, um, there is there is no better time to visit what happened in 2005 than now, um, because this is like another great time for us to be making sure that we, you know, check on the kids. Edward Buckles, thank you so much for joining us today on Louisiana Considered. Uh, congratulations on your film, and which you can watch by going to HBO Max. Ed, thank you so much. All right, thank you so much. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Patrick Madden. Earlier this year, New Orleans Public Library launched Crescent City Sounds, a music streaming service made up exclusively of New Orleans artists. And PR Scott Simon wanted to learn more about this city-specific music stream, and he spoke with the person behind the idea, Joshua Smith. We're a huge music city, and we're a city that works together and supports each other, and I really thought that we needed this cool free music catalog for the community to stream and for unknown artists to get their names out there. Other public libraries in great music towns, including Austin and Nashville, have set up similar online music libraries. New Orleans launched its service with 28 local artists earlier this week. It's just a great way to get as much of their information and their music out to the public in a low-barrier, free kind of way. The library invited a rapper, a DJ, and other local music professionals to curate the collection. You think of a certain amount of things as New Orleans music, and we certainly have that up on there, but we have a lot of rock stuff that you wouldn't think of, and like just some weird things. I love everything that we put up. Marina Orchestra is like beachy, yacht rock, really fun. And Swayze is super awesome, like old school electronica pop kind of stuff. Another local musician who's part of the Crescent City Sounds is Ted Hefko of Ted Hefko and the Thousand Airs. Where did all my good friends go? Where the currents of the Midwest meet the Gulf of Mexico. He's a roots rock musician and songwriter who says New Orleans shaped his music. I mean, music is everywhere. I was sitting in a bar last night and the brass band led a whole group of people and they came in. So you never know when it's going to appear. Ted Hefko says that he got involved when one of the curators contacted him. It is nice to have it in a place other than Spotify or something where it's lumped in with music from all over the place and people can just concentrate on the New Orleans music scene. Crescent City Sounds pays each artist a small honorarium, $250, to license their music for five years, and it plans to look for more music to add to its collection next year. Library associate Joshua Smith says reactions so far have been positive. I hope people find some cool new bands and get out and go to shows and have a good time.
From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Patrick Madden. Thanks to today's guests, Terry Bacay and David Francis of Verite, filmmaker Edward Buckles Jr. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. And it's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts.